It is uh, good to be with you. So I was uh, preparing stuff for the service this morning, going through my sermon, and we have our friends, the Potters, they're in from Montreal, which is always a huge blessing to have them here. You know, most of you know who they are. Mary comes down to me and says, we have no water. We have no water. So that was the morning this morning, and we don't know what's going on, but it is true, we have no water. Here's the good news, though. I got a shower this morning. Mary got a shower. The Canadians did not get a shower. So if I were you, I would shake their hands rather than hug them this morning. Although, Zoe did get a shower, and that's their new baby girl. Look at her. You want to talk about cheeks. Like, I feel like she's in pain constantly because her cheeks are so heavy. Like, she's just... 13 pounds, how old, are, how old, six weeks, 13 pounds, <laughs> yeah, right, well, hey, uh, it's good to be back for our sermon series, True Worship, this is the final message in this series, as Brandon mentioned earlier, and we've covered a lot of ground in this sermon series, uh, we've been looking at this idea that God is seeking worshipers that love him supremely with their heart, trust them supremely with their mind, and obey and serve him supremely with their hands. So we've been talking about this idea that true worship of God, it involves our head, it involves our heart, it involves our hands. And we've taken time to look at the head and heart in a little bit more detail. This morning, we're going to take time to look at worshiping with God with our hands in a bit more detail. We're going to be anchored in Ephesians 2. As always, the verses will be on the screen, but if you like a Bible in your hand, I encourage you to turn to one, or turn to Ephesians 2 in one. So let's pray, and then we'll read our Scripture passage. Lord Jesus, we we thank you that your word is living and it's active and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And then it has a way of just penetrating right into our hearts to show us your grace, to show us your mercy, and also to show us where we're not living in alignment to you. Lord, you are worthy of our worship. You deserve our worship. You are holy, holy, holy. Lord, I pray that as we look at Ephesians 2, and as we consider that worship, true worship includes our hands, that you might teach us, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us, and that we wouldn't just become smarter Christians, but that we would become more faithful Christians with our actions. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, read with me Ephesians 2. Follow along with me as I read it here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So Apostle Paul, he writes, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince 
of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so here's what I want to focus on from this passage. Two things. The first is, if we are going to worship with God with our hands, we must understand that faith expresses itself in obedience. Faith expresses itself in obedience. Secondly, we must understand that love motivates and sustains obedience. Love motivates and sustains obedience. So let's look at the first one. Faith expresses itself in obedience. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul, he's really emphasizing this, this, this very, very important truth. And that is salvation is this unearned gift from God that we receive through faith in Christ. Like he wants everybody that he's writing to, the believers at Ephesus, to know that, look, You are saved by grace. You, nobody can say, I did it, right? Nobody can say that I made my salvation happen. Nobody can say that I am my own savior, that I earned my way into God's acceptance, that I climbed the ladder to God. Look at me. Look at all the good works that I did that finally made God owe me. So salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? Extremely important. Paul wants his audience to know this. But Paul also wants his audience to know that although salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, right? Am I saying this right? That salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Paul wants his audience to know that true Salvation, saving faith, is never alone, right? Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, he writes this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is saying that true saving faith is always accompanied by good works, Hands, using our hands to do the good works that God has called us to. And James, the brother of Jesus, he agrees with Paul. He agreed with Paul. Look, James 2, 18 through 20 says this. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? James is saying, hey, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. You can say that you're a Christian. You can say that you have faith. You can quote scripture. You can go to Bible studies. You can attend church services on Sunday. But if your faith has not, it has not propelled you to live differently with your hands, if your faith has not changed your lifestyle, you really have to question whether or not you have real saving faith. You really have to question whether or not you've understood the gospel. You really have to question whether the gospel has melted your heart. James tells us that even the demons believe that God exists. But nobody would be foolish, foolish enough to say that the demons are saved, right? James, of course, is pointing out that true faith is more than just believing in the reality of God. That mental assent alone is not true saving faith. It's a part of it. It's an important part of it, but it's not the whole of it. You can agree that Jesus is the Son of God. You can agree that Jesus performed miracles. You can agree that Jesus died on the cross. You can believe all these things and yet still not trust him. You see, true, genuine, saving faith is more than mental assent. It is more. True saving faith also includes trust and obedience. I came across this uh, story earlier this week about this high wire walker. And he was, he strung a wire across the Grand Canyon, right? He pushed a wheelbarrow. I always say that wrong. Borrow, will borrow, up to the edge of the wire, and then he turned to the crowd that had gathered. And he asked, Do you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow uh, across the wire? And he said, The crowd said, Oh, yes, we believe. So the man, he pushes the wheelbarrow, still can't say it right, across, he, he, pushes the, he pushes the thing across the wire across the canyon, and then he pushes it back again. And then he asks the crowd again, do you believe that I can push this thing across the canyon on this wire? And they say, yes, we believe. And then he pointed to a man, and he said, get in the wheel, wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow, then. But the man refused. The man did not trust the high wire walker. He didn't trust him. And so he wasn't willing to commit his life to this guy. And therefore, he wasn't obedient to his commands. If the guy in the audience who the high wire walker pointed to was willing to actually get in that thing, that would prove his obedience would be evidence that he trusts the wire walker. You see, true saving biblical faith is comprised of not only belief, but trust and obedience. And obedience is the evidence that our belief in Jesus is real. 
And so to be a Christian, at the very minimum, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for the sins of the world and that he defeated death by rising from the dead. You need to know these truths. You need to assent to these truths mentally. But you also have to trust that Jesus' death sufficiently paid for your sin debt. And as a result, God is no longer counting your sin against you. And then you have to live a life of obedience to Jesus. Perfect obedience? No. But at the very least, your life should show an attempt, should show that you're attempting to really live out all that Jesus commands. You see, there's always this danger. And you guys are talking about churches that this is happening there's always this danger that in a congregation right here, there are people who are simply mental assenters when it comes to Christianity. They believe in Jesus. They agree with many biblical truths. They believe that attending church on Sundays is a good thing. They believe, but they haven't committed their life to Christ, and therefore there is no spiritual fruit in their life. Their life hasn't changed. They talk like the rest of the world. They handle relationships like the rest of the world. They get divorced like the rest of the world. They handle their sexuality like the rest of the world. They consume pornography like the rest of the world. They subscribe to materialism like the rest of the world. They misuse drugs and alcohol like the rest of the world. They are greedy with their money just like the rest of the world. They haven't said with a sincere heart, Jesus, you are Lord and I am not. Show me the areas of my life that are not yielded to you and then give me the grace and the power to make those changes. Teach me to obey all that you have commanded. And so I ask you this morning, maybe you're here today. And when you honestly look at your life, it's not marked by obedience to Jesus. If you're honest, you're not actively pursuing to learn all that Jesus commanded and then to put it into action. And God, by his grace, is showing you now that although you say you believe in Christ, your lack of obedience reveals that you haven't placed your trust in him and you haven't committed your life to his lordship. And so I ask you, will you do so now? Will you commit your life to him now? Will you tell Christ now that the rest of your life is going to be devoted to obeying all that he has commanded? That no part of your life is going to be outside of your rule, outside of his rule, excuse me. That your marriage is going to be under his lordship. Your career is going to be under his lordship. Your, your, all your work and your hobbies your family, your finances, your health, your recreation. That in all these areas, you're going to seek his will. That you will seek to live as his masterpiece, as Ephesians 2.10 says. So that you are able, and, and you're going to be committed to performing those good works that he has prepared for you to do. True faith expresses itself in obedience. True worship includes obedience with your hands. Now, 
this, this leads us to the second point, and this is critical. How can we sustain obedience, and how can we be motivated by obedience? If faith expresses itself in obedience, and if true worship includes obedience with our hands and with our actions, how can, it, how can we be motivated to live that lifestyle, and how can we be sustained in it? Well, point number two. Love motivates and sustains obedience. Let me, let me explain this. For a moment, let's turn our attention to Romans 12. Very familiar passage for many people. It's the classic text on how our lives, it, it should be a living sacrifice. How our lives should be this offering that we give to God, our actions, our hands in worship of him. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect in the perfect will of God. Look, handing over the keys of your life to God can seem just outlandish. It can seem like crazy talk. Like really, I'm just going to I'm just going to just give everything over to him and he's going to be the lord of my life. He's going to be the CEO. Really? Isn't that like just like blind faith that defies reason? But in these verses Paul is saying, actually no, it's the reasonable thing to do. Like It's the sensible thing to do. It just makes sense that you would hand over the keys of your life to Jesus. It's the wise thing to do. It's the prudent thing to do. Why does Paul say this? Well, because in Romans 12.1, he says that he appeals on the basis of God's mercy. That his appeal to give everything over to Jesus is grounded in the mercies of God. Paul is saying that if you consider the mercies of God, if, then whole life commitment to God just makes sense. It's the reasonable thing to do. What are the mercies of God that Paul is referring to? Well, you'd have to look at Romans chapters 1 through 11. Because in those chapters, there are many mercies that are detailed in these chapters. Let's just look at a few of them. How about some verses from Romans 5, verses 6 through 11? For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Talk about mercies. Talk about grace. And then there's this great, wonderful chapter that is Romans 8. In Romans 8, Paul, he really hones on, he just really hones in on the mercies of God. And he says things like, hey, those who have put their trust in Jesus are adopted into God's family. 
that they have God as their father, that they are indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit, that they have God working all things together for the good of his children, that God is supplying all of his children's needs, that those who have placed their trust in Jesus are joint heirs with Christ, and they look forward to this amazing inheritance that includes life with the resurrected Jesus and a resurrected body in the resurrected world. So when you have all these mercies, when you see this grace clearly, in light of this grace, and, and not even to mention that Jesus is the author of our very lives. He's the creator and sustainer of our very lives. He is giving you the breath you breathe right now at this very moment. He is giving you that breath and then the next one. In light of all this, it's only reasonable to give your whole life to the one who has given his whole life for you. It would be the right thing to do. It would be the sensible thing to do. God is saying, maybe you're here this morning and you're just hesitant. You haven't given the keys of your life over to Jesus. Do you see that it's the sensible thing to do? And I also want to point this out. Our obedience has to be motivated by this grace. Anytime that God tells us to obey his commands... He first, he first expresses his love for us. You see, grace always precedes the law. Grace always precedes law. God, he loves us and he expresses that love to us and then he makes requests of us. The Ten Commandments is a perfect example of this, isn't it? In, God rescued the Israelite people from slavery in Egypt. He showed them undeserved favor in doing so. What grace and mercy. And then he says to them in Exodus 20, he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. See, he's saying, like, remember the grace. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Right? You shall... Honor your father and your mother. Hey, don't take my name in vain. Don't murder. Take a Sabbath each week. And by the way, I'm not only giving you these commands because I want you to know how to love me in return. I'm also giving you these commands because I want you to have a full, abundant life. And so it's another act of God's love and him giving these commands. Grace always precedes God's law. That is his commands. We see that in this passage, don't we? So back to our passage, Ephesians 2.10. Before Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10 that we should live a life of good works, he spends the verses leading up to verse 10 detailing the mercies of God. And you even go back to Ephesians chapter 1. He starts there, detailing the mercies and the grace of God that's been expressed to the audience that he's writing to. You see, religion operates this way. You obey, and then you will be accepted by God. But Christianity works in this way. You are accepted and loved, and therefore, you obey. 
You see, if we are going to be motivated to love God in return, if we are going to be sustained in doing good works for him, we have to be fueled by the grace and the love that he has expressed to us that comes before his commands. Let me explain, uh, let me explain it this way. If, if, it's not, if it doesn't work that way for you, if you are not motivated by his grace and love, and if that's not real to you, then, and you don't just want to love him in return, you are going to be pushed to either legalism or licentiousness. Legalism, let's look at that first. The legalist, he obeys out of duty, right? Not delight. For the legalist, God's commands are, I have to, not I get to. For the legalist, their mindset is, I must obey God's commands for him to accept me and for things in my life to go well. It's all about self-preservation, isn't it? It's all motivated by fear, the fear of losing something if they do not obey God and his commands. They're not interested in pleasing God simply to make his heart happy. Legalism, it'll lead to one of two things, anxiety or pride. Either you're going to be constantly anxious that you're not doing enough good works for, to appease God, and therefore he may drop the hammer on you at any moment, or you're going to think that your good works are amazing and you're doing really well and you've done well enough to put God in your debt. And so he owes you. You see, legalists, they're obedient and it's is driven by fear and by earning and it's self-centered. Look, but if we understand the mercy of Jesus and that we're already accepted in him and that grace is real to us, we're simply going to be free to love Jesus and obey his commands and worship him with our hands because we just want to bring pleasure to his heart. We'll delight in obeying his commands. We'll delight in making him happy. Obedience will be from a sincere heart of love. Look, God's love for us as well helps us to not go into licentiousness. And licentiousness is, you know what, I'm just going to live however I want to, right? The, the person that lives in that way says, you know, God's grace is there. He'll forgive me so I can just live however I want to. But this person is just as selfish as the legalist. It's all about them doing what they want to. Again, but if your heart is melted by the grace of God, you're not going to just want to live however you want to. You're not going to just be like, well, I got God's grace, and so he'll just forgive me so I can do whatever I want to. No, you're going to be moved with a desire to please him. You see... We need to, if we're going to worship God with our hands, we have to be so grounded and so rooted in the gospel, in the grace of God. Or we're not going to be motivated to obey out of the right reasons. We're not going to be, we're not going to be able to sustain good, the good works God has called us to. Look, I have a chiropractor 
that I see once every two weeks. And uh, I have chronic neck pain, many of you know. And this chiropractor has never charged me once. I've seen him for years. Amazing. What grace. What grace. What doctor does that? And you know what? (laughs) When I miss an appointment, I feel horrible. When I miss it, when I forget about an appointment, and it's happened a couple times. It's, it's one of those things where I'm sure you've even, maybe you've experienced this, where it's like, I don't want to pick up the phone. It's like, I don't want to talk to them about, I just, I feel horrible. And you know why I feel horrible? It's not because I'm thinking, well, what if he stops treating me for free? It's not about what I might lose. It's did I hurt his heart? Did I hurt him in some way? He has shown so much grace to me. Did I mess up his day? Did I mess up his schedule? Could he have taken a paying patient in my time slot? You see, it's his grace that motivates me to want to love this chiropractor in return. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. Catch this. Remorse is, I'm sorry because of what it's going to cost me. So if I would have went to this chiropractor and I would have said, I'm so sorry, I missed the appointment. Oh, please keep treating me. I won't do it again. I'm concerned about what it's going to cost me. Repentance is different. Repentance is your concern that you have hurt the heart of the one you've offended. It's motivated, out of, it's motivated for love for the person that you have hurt. I've hurt you. I've seen the pain you're going through. I won't do it again because I know I don't want to hurt you again. That's real repentance. You know how that, you know how you really truly love God? is when you don't obey his commands. How do you react? Do you go back to him because it's all about what it might cost you, your sin and your mistake? Or do you go back to God motivated with repentance that says, I've sinned only against you have I sinned. I've, I've hurt your heart, the heart that has loved me so much and has given me so much grace. You see... God's love, his grace, is the only thing that can motivate us and sustain us in doing the good works he's called us to do. It's the only thing that can, can really enable us to worship God with our hands. And so I beseech you today, in light of God's mercy, worship God with your minds, worship God with your hearts, but also worship God with your hands. Offer your total body, all that you are, your complete self to God as a living sacrifice. It is the reasonable thing to do. In fact, you will find that it's really not a sacrifice at all. Let me close with this story about this missionary named David Livingstone. David Livingstone was born on March 19th, 1813. He gave his life to serve Christ in the exploration of Africa for the sake of creating access to the gospel. 
He was the first European to cross the width of Africa and the first to set his eyes on Victoria Falls, which he named after his queen. He also laid his eyes on the horrors of the East African slave trade and devoted himself with passion as an abolitionist. On December 4th, 1857, he addressed the students of Livingstone Savage University about leaving the benefits of England behind. Here is what Livingstone said to the Cambridge students. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. And then he says this. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it's a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these, and I love the sentence, all these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I have never made a sacrifice. Hmm. We will find that any sacrifices that we think we are making as we live faithfully for Jesus, as we worship him with our hands, is only leading to the glory of God and our benefit. How is it a sacrifice? How is it a sacrifice when we restrict our freedom in one sense to gain a greater freedom in a more abundant life, <laughs> in another sense. Jesus himself said in Luke 6, 46 through 49, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you who, whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Are you building your life on the rock? Jesus also said in Mark 10, 29 through 30, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Let's show the genuineness of our faith as we worship God with our hands, as we obey all that he has commanded, as we engage ourselves in good works that bring glory to his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your grace. 
We're so grateful that grace always precedes the law, that you didn't come to us and say, just obey me. Because I said so. No, you say, look at how I love you. Look at what I've done for you. Look how precious you are to me. Look at how I've redeemed you and saved you. Look at the mercy and grace I've shown you. Will you love me in return by obeying my commands? We thank you for that. We thank you that you are that kind of God and Father. We also thank you, too, that you created things in such a way that when we obey your commands, we not only bring pleasure to your heart and glorify you, but that's when we experience the most satisfaction in life. You are such a good God. How you love us. Lord, I pray that if there is somebody here that hasn't given their life to you, that they would do so this morning that times of refreshing would come to them. And I pray for those of us in this room who have uh, made you and received you as our Lord, that you would reveal to us if there are parts of our lives that still have not yielded, are still not yielded to you. And then you would give us the grace and the mercy to bring those areas of our life under your lordship and obedience to you in alignment with you and your kingdom and your values. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.